Uh, great to be with you in church today. Thanks, everybody, for joining us online, too. And uh, we're going to get to the final week of our teaching in the book of Numbers today. But before we do that, I, uh, I'd like to make an appeal for you to become digital missionaries. See, we have uh, Holy Week starts a week from today with Palm Sunday. It's the eight days where we remember the last week in the life of Jesus Christ before his crucifixion. And, um, you know, the pandemic has, has created some new circumstances for you and I over the last year. And uh, we have to think differently about how we program our church, about how we liturgize our church, about what kind of stuff that we do. And we don't have to just think differently, you know, up here. We have to, th we have to think differently. And I would like us to preach the gospel. Us is the important word there. I would like us to preach the gospel to 10,000 people during Holy Week. Now, there's no scenario where 10,000 people are going to be in this room. But they weren't going to be in this room a year ago. In fact, if we rented the largest auditorium in Jackson, we still wouldn't have 10,000 people in the room for Holy Week. And I confess, a year ago, we had all these church services planned for last year's Holy Week, and instead of doing them live, we had to do them online. We learned a lot about that. We learned a lot about what we didn't like. Um, but this year, we knew. We knew we were going to have to do most of it online. We still have three services, uh, two special services at our regular Sunday service. I'll tell you about those in a second. But I just want you to get your head around the fact that we have an opportunity now. After a year of comfort with online church, after a year of comfort with watching daily services on the brevier, after a year of getting used to it, it's time for us to do more than just be used to it. And so I'm looking for digital missionaries. Because I want us to preach the gospel to 10,000 people next week. Eight days. Somebody help me out with the math. That's like 4,000 people a day. Thank you. Um, and here, here's the way you do that, okay? You can, you, when, we, when we present stuff online, I'll, I'll take you through what we're going to do specifically in a moment, but I, I want to focus on your part, okay? When we present stuff online, if you like it, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, they, they largely keep your likes invisible. If you share it, more people see it in the magic of the internet realm than just the people in your network. It just becomes more visible. The most important thing that you could do actually would be to tag somebody in it. Um, but that seems a little silly. You know, you're going to go through and tag everybody on your phone, you know, and every time we post a video. No, no, no. Here's what I want you to do. When you see something, I want you to spend 30 seconds prayerfully considering who might benefit from what you just saw. And then I want you to type their name and a note. Now, the name is a tiny little bit of work. The note is where I think the true work of spiritual edification can occur online. Because we know how bad a bad note feels. John, you racist idiot, you should need to watch this. We all have seen that. Well, why don't we do some good stuff? Why don't we do some gospeling in our culture? John, I watched this. I thought of you. I know this has been a crazy year for you. I think you might find some encouragement. Why don't you go through and tag some people? Send it to people in the private messages. That helps too. But let's together realize that we have, a, we have an entire gospel army in this room. 
And you might see stuff that you don't really like, but the point is not whether or not you like it. You're already going to heaven. The point is that there's a whole lot of people out there that might need a little encouragement because they feel like they're living in through hell. And there's always two reactions whenever we do something online or whenever we do something um, experimental because we're an experimental kind of place. You know, usually people will say one of two things. They'll say, oh, I hated that. Why do you keep doing stuff like that? Or they'll say, oh, I loved that. Why don't you do more stuff like that? But it's never about the same thing. Because we do so many things, not everybody's going to like everything we do. Because they don't have great taste like I do. <laughs> so for you, the point is not, do I like it? The point is, who will benefit from this? Who needs the kind of hope and healing that's being offered here like this? And I bet you, in 30 seconds a day for eight days, you can make a profound impact in the lives of the people God has asked you to love. 10,000 people, eight days, starting next Sunday on Palm Sunday. Now, we have a bunch of different stuff that we're doing. Uh, uh, that's why you've got the little sort of TV schedule uh, when you came in the door. They'll put it up here on the screen so you can kind of see it. There's stuff that we're doing online and there's stuff that we're doing on site. Our on-site services are designed to be one-of-a-kind, unique experiences that will not be live-streamed. We'll live-stream church next Sunday. We'll live-stream church Easter Sunday. But on Monday, Thursday, we're going to relive the Lord's Supper. And if you're not here, you're not going to see what we do. And in 25 years of being a pastor, training pastors, being involved in churches all over the world, I have never heard of, nor seen, nor certainly experienced anything like what we have planned to relive the Lord's Supper. It'll start in here. We'll share a meal together. We'll sing corporately. We'll hear directly from Jesus through film and television. And then it ends out in the stockyard in the dark at night with an extended time of prayer to recall Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane the night that he was betrayed. Now, you remember, Jesus came back three times chastising his disciples for not being very good at praying and not being able to pray very long without getting tired, sleepy, cold, and the other seven dwarves. <laughs> so I'll tell you, it's going to be an emotional and an emotionally intense evening. I guarantee you, for those who stick it out to the end, your, your faith will be radically changed forever. Then on Good Friday, we're meeting in here for prayer. That's it. There's no, there's no congregational singing. There'll be some music in the background to set the mood because I think Scripture's clear that, that music has power that way. Um, and, but there's no, there's no sermon. We're just going to pray. We'll, we'll anoint one another with oil. We'll spend time privately in the Scriptures. But we're just going to turn this place into sort of a prayer tent, a prayer palace. And our elders and some of our key leaders will walk around and pray for you and pray with you. Uh, but we're just going to pray together. Which is, again, why we don't want to broadcast it online. Because online, that looks, it's voyeuristic. But here, we, we want to be people hallmarked by prayer, practicing the presence of God. And then, of course, Easter Sunday, we have baptism, which can be awesome. I love baptisms. They're so fun. Uh, let us know if you want to get baptized. We'd love to put you in the holy hot tub full of hand sanitizer. Just get the sin off inside and outside of you. Um, 
And then, and then online all week, we've got really special things planned. Our, our morning matin services and our morning laud services, which we always have, will be focused on Holy Week that week. Um, also, there's our Lenten um, um, uh, illustrations and reflections will continue. But then every evening, we have a special mixture of teaching and music that goes along a particular theme in different locations that our team have filmed all around Jackson that'll highlight an aspect of the last week of Jesus' life that I guarantee you, you have not previously considered. Those are going to be really powerful. And again, they're only like five or six minutes long, so you can watch them, share them. And in one of the funnest experiences I've ever had, Kevin and I decided we would go to downtown Detroit in the snow and sort of reclaim an American tradition. And so on Good Friday and on Silent Saturday and on Easter Sunday, we will release at 7 a.m., videos of Kevin street busking while I stand on a soapbox and preach the gospel downtown. And, and we thought this would be fun. It was amazing. It was one of the most powerful, enjoyable, impactful experiences of my life. And so you'll be able to see those. And, and honestly, it's, yeah. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but Kevin is really talented. <laughs> so that's, that's what we have planned for you for this Easter season. And again, what we want to do is encourage one another and preach the gospel. We believe that Jesus is the hope of the world. We believe that the church is the hands and feet of Jesus. And when the people of God do the work of God, well, then it's God's will that gets done instead of all this other nonsense. Amen? Let me pray for us and we'll get into the book of Numbers. Lord, we love you. We need you. We need you to revolutionize our faith. We need you to purify and cleanse our thoughts and our hearts. We need you to heal our families and our relationships, our businesses, our jobs. Lord, we need you in every direction. We need you all the time. And we need you right now. Thank God you're good. And thank you, God, you're here. These things we pray, and for which we give thanks in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Numbers chapter 33 recounts the story of the people of God leaving Egypt and getting all the way to the cusp of the promised land. Now, we've been telling this story and all the stories in it over the last six or seven weeks here and online through the breviary. And we've been through some dizzying material, you know, poisonous snakes, strange uh, uh, rituals to accuse somebody of adultery. We've seen all kinds of weird miracles. We've seen all kinds of strange miracles, some stuff that's uncomfortable, all of which turned out to be very, very powerful and useful in us understanding who God is and how God works. The people of God were enslaved for 500 years. They'd had the land that God gave them taken away. Something that was theirs was stolen. And now God raised up Moses to deliver them from captivity and lead them into the promised land so they can get back what was always theirs and what will be theirs again. And so Numbers 33 tells the whole story from when they left Egypt to when they get to the edge of the promised land. And it's really boring oh, wow, Moses is not writing a bestseller here. I mean, it's terrible. It's back and forth from they camped here, then they wandered here. They camped here, and then they wandered here. Just back and forth like Charlie Brown's teacher. It's awful. But I believe that the things that we have in the Bible are there for a reason. 
Even the repetition is there for a reason. If they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness, then I bet you all that repetition means something to them. I bet they remember the places they camped. I bet you they're not just words to them. Those are memories. And when you dig past some of that repetition, you start to see little details here and there. And those little details here and there are illustrative because they show us how God wants us to be. So I'm going to take you through five little details. And then when we get to the edge of the promised land, I'm going to give you four things that we're supposed to do when we take back what's ours. The first weird little detail is that it recalls when the people left Egypt, they went out defiantly. That's how they began their journey, defiantly, with a little uh, spit and vinegar, with a little fire in their belly, with a little chin up and a what's up. And I don't, I don't know that we remember it like that. Like we remember they were enslaved, all these miracles happened, God said go, and they left. And we sort of imagined that they were running scared, running for their lives, and eventually they were. But the first thing we're told is the attitude with which they left not Egypt, no, no, with which they left to seize the future. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember a year ago when I heard that there was a, you know, a flu bug going around. I had a lot more pluck in me than for most of this last year. You remember we heard, oh yeah, it's, it's, it's going everywhere, but they're working on a vaccine. We might be shut down for two weeks. Oh, they want us to shut churches down. Or if you're open, you've got to be socially distanced. Uh, probably have to wear a mask. And, and we heard all those things, and I heard them defiantly. Not as in, I'm not going to obey the rules, but just as in like, yeah, we'll get through this. We're tougher than this. No matter what the world throws at us, we got this because God's got a future for us, and we're marching towards it. I don't know about you, but that, that particular attitude took a kick in the knee once or twice this year. And I think that happened to the people of God, too, way back here. I mean, there's a reason they wrote down, that they recorded, that they rehearsed and remembered the attitude with which they set out on that journey, because they're going to need that attitude again, because the journey's not over. And if you're going to get through to the end, if you're going to take back what rightfully belongs to you, you're going to need some grit. You're going to need, you need to get tough again. Because you got another fight coming. Remember, they're, they're telling the story of how they got here, and here is the last day before the fight of your life. So don't forget, the attitude with which you started back then, that's the attitude you got to reclaim right now. Because you're still in a fight, and in fact, it's going to get harder tomorrow. That might be a good word for, well, for me, I don't care about the rest of you, but for me, i got to remember that. <laughs> Second thing that, that sticks out to me in the funny little details of the story is in verse 4, where it says that our God defeated and shamed the gods of Egypt. Now, I think that's fascinating. Not only did God deliver them from actual humans, but there was a fight going on that they couldn't see, that they couldn't perceive, that they could probably feel, but that they couldn't understand, and God was winning that fight too. See, there are invisible forces arrayed against you. Those might be things like student loans, mortgage rates, 
price of oil, those things are all invisible. There might be other invisible forces arrayed against you, envy, betrayal, jealousy. There might be supernatural forces arrayed against you, powers of oppression and darkness and control. And guess what? In the same way that God's helping you in your physical circumstances, in the same way that God's helping you in your financial circumstances, God is protecting you from fights you don't even know you're in. And every now and then you're going to get knocked on your face and go, where did that come from? I don't know, man. Came out of nowhere. It's invisible. It's spiritual. It's supernatural. But guess what? God's got that fight. So get back on your feet and get back in the game Enough being surprised, enough being bewildered, enough being hurt, enough being offended. You got a fight coming. And you might have taken a couple of low blows up to this point, but don't worry. God's going to help you win the fights you can't see also. So already in a couple of verses, there's just some weird things that stick out to me. They're grit. God's protection. And then, and then it tells us that they started going out into the wilderness and they found this place with the, let me get the numbers right, um, 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. That's a funny detail, right? Like back and forth, this whole chapter is, then they camped, then they went to the next wilderness, then they camped, then they went to the next wilderness. Here's a name you can't pronounce. Here's another name you can't pronounce. And then they get to this place with 12 springs and 70 palm trees. Now, you could do a lot with those numbers. The number 12 is sort of important in the Bible. So is the number 70. Um, but I think really what they're describing is a kind of oasis experience. Like, you know when you go on a road trip with your family and you're in the car for like however many days and, and it's, it's terrible, you know, by the end of it, you hate your dad, um, you keep going, you're mad at your brother because he got Taco Bell. I mean, just the whole, the whole, like the, the claustrophobia of it, the irritation of it. But then when you go back and look at the pictures, you don't look at a picture of the Taco Bell wrapper. You, you find a picture of like that lake you didn't know about, that you stopped at unplanned, where you went swimming and there was a tire swing and you just, you have these unexpected graces, these little pleasures. You know, there's nothing wrong with pleasure. And the thing that happens to them next is they go to the shores of the Red Sea. See, now, now they're terrified. When, when they hear that Pharaoh's army is coming after them, all his horses, his chariots, they, they, now they're scared. So they're running to the Red Sea. God performs a supernatural miracle, which they don't actually mention in chapter 33, which is a hilarious omission to me. They get to the banks of the Red Sea. God delivers them. But the last thing that happened before their whole world went upside down again was this beautiful little moment, this pleasurable afternoon, this, this grace of water and shade. Now, we need those moments. And not only do we need to experience them, we need to remember them. Because I bet when you rehearse 
the last 12 months, you don't really focus on the pleasurable moments. You go, oh, what a terrible year. I lost my job. Or what a terrible year. You know, there's this bad thing that happened. What a terrible year. We can't go to the movies anymore. What a terrible year. We went to the movie and it was awful. Whatever. But I bet, I bet if you'll look back over this last season of your life, you will find all these unexpected graces. The moments you experienced the goodness of God in ways for which you were unprepared. Well, they have the grace, and then they have to run for their lives. And they keep going, and they keep going. They get through the Red Sea, and then they get on the far side of the Red Sea, and they hear, in verse 14, a place where there was no water for the people to drink. Then it gets hard. It just gets hard after that. What's funny is that Moses doesn't record the two times God supernaturally provided water for them when there was nothing to drink. He leaves that part out to just acknowledge this was hard. Hey, this last year's been hard. If it hadn't been hard for you, the rest of us would be happy to share some of our lamentations. <laughs> this last year's been hard. I, I remember uh, you know, a couple years ago, I broke my neck. That was really hard. I look back over that season of my life, and there may have been a million great days. There may have been some spectacular things that happened, but I go, yeah, all I really remember is that was a hard season of not knowing what was wrong, why I was in so much pain, not getting in. That was, that was just hard. I pray that when you retell the story of your life, you have the courage to say, without any BS, some parts were really hard. And you don't need to cook, you don't need to whitewash it, you don't need to be cute about it, you can just say, that was hard. Then they go camping, then they go to a place with a strange name, wilderness camp, wilderness camp, wilderness camp, wilderness camp, and then Aaron dies. Moses' brother, high priest of ancient Israel, and they grieve. Grief is a part of your story. Grief is a part of your story. You probably lost some people this year. You probably grieve that you couldn't properly grieve. I remember being at my dad's graveside, and I could only get to his funeral because I've got dual citizenship, so the Canadians couldn't keep me out, you know. I remember driving to the graveside, and uh, at the end, I walked up to kiss his casket. And, uh, and I pulled my mask down to do it. And the funeral director said, Sir, mask. As though he could die a second time. So I, I grieve that I didn't get the sweet moments to say goodbye to my, to my father. And, and that's such a tiny triviality, that one little moment. But I just think it, we all know what it's like to just miss some things and miss some folks and miss some people. When you tell the story of your life, you're going you're gonna to have some grief and you're going to have some hardship. 
but you'll also have some pleasures to sustain you. You'll have the certainty of God's provision to embolden you, and you'll remember the defiance with which you set out, because you're going to need that same defiance right now, because I think I said it once or twice already, but it bears repeating, that wasn't your last fight. You got another fight coming. See, here's the thing. The people of God are standing at the border of their land. That was theirs, and somebody took it away. You probably had a few things taken away this year. And don't be misled. The things that were taken away were not your freedoms. You know, don't, don't be sidetracked by, you know, masks and restaurants and Florida. No, no, no. The real things that you lost are right here. This is what you lost. This is what you lost. You lost the ability to trust other people. You lost the ability to love other people unconditionally. You lost the ability to overlook small inconveniences. You lost the ability to forgive an offense. And now you're standing right at the edge of what used to be your home. And God's telling you, it's time to take it back. Time to get your life back. Time to get yourself back. Get yourself correct. Let's get to the place where we know God has called us to live. Let's live where we always knew we belonged. Now, for them, that was a particular piece of property. For you, that's your heart. It's time to get your heart back. Now, God, through Moses, gives them four instructions. I think that serves as a really good really good grid for you and I to think about how we're going to take back what we've lost to. He says, go in there and drive out the people and the things that live in your home. Smash all their idols. Settle there and distribute everything you got. Well, let's tease that out for a bit. So I've just been kind of listening to the rhythm of those words, you know. Drive them out, smash it up, settle there, distribute. It's just kind of a cadence to it, you know. Drive them out, smash them up, settle there, distribute. See, there were uh, giants living in the land. Real scary big things. And God says, they got to go. There's probably some giants inside of you. Envy, resentment, frustration. I mean, I know how they got there. I mean, those giants were stronger than the Israeli people, so they they just took what they wanted. It's very possible that your resentments are stronger than your compassion. And so your resentments crushed your compassion. And now, now they live here. Kick them out. Kick them out. Get rid of your envy. Get rid of your betrayal. Get rid of your oppression. Get rid of your comparisons. You get rid of it. Get rid of your moaning and your bellyache and get rid of it. Get rid of all of it. God tells them, if even one of them is left alive, they will be a thorn in your side until the day you die. Boy, isn't that true with resentment? Isn't that true with bitterness? 
You didn't get that scholarship? How long do you want to cry about it? How long do you want to nurse that wound? Somebody broke your heart? How long should you hate them for? Because they've moved on, shouldn't you? you? You didn't have that job anymore? You got cut? You got hurt? You got broke? You got demoted? Yep, that sucks. But the real issue now is not what you lost a year ago or six weeks ago or six months ago. The real issue now, your real enemy right now lives in here. And you're the only person that can kick him out. So get to work. Get rid of all jealousy, anger, envy, comparison. Get rid of all pettiness. And then smash those idols up. Now, back then, of course, they're talking about actual idols, you know, little stone statues, poles, things that people would worship. You and I got different things that we worship. We have idols, too. Your idol could be wealth. Your idol could be another person whose life you really envy and wish you had. Your idol could be money. Your, your idol could be education. For me, my, my greatest idol, the thing I have to fight all the time, is my imagination. Now, like so many things, imagination can be either an idol or an icon. You know the difference? An icon is something that, when you see it, angles glory up to God. An idol, when you see it, is something that reflects your ego back at you. Great musical ability can be an idol or an icon. Privilege can be an idol or an icon. Really depends what you do with it. My imagination can be iconic, and it can be idolatrous. And maybe you can relate, you know, there's sometimes that, uh, like, my imagination just runs away with me. It happens a lot when I'm praying. I start out praying good things for somebody. Lord, help them. Lord, bless them. Then I remember something they said to me that made me mad. Or I remember some time that they took advantage of me, or that they were a jerk to me. And next thing you know, instead of, instead of praying for them, I'm yelling at them in my truck, and the next time, don't you, you know, all this. I've never lost an argument by myself. And I realize, like, I've, I am now fantasizing about something that has never happened, that never will happen, only so that I can exert my dominance over a ghost. Because my imagination ran away with me. Well, when you realize that's what's happening, you've got to smash it. You've got to smash it. Maybe your idol isn't imagination. Maybe it's not intellect. Maybe it's not whatever. Whatever it is, man, you know. You catch yourself. You catch your heart going astray. You catch your mind going astray. When that happens, you, you smash it. You get rid of it. Because the place where you want to live is a pure heart. It's a renewed and sanctified mind. That's what God tells Moses. Settle there. Live there. Live in this land filled with prosperity, abundance, and delight. Live there. Have children. Marry. Enjoy the land that I've given you. Live. Live in love. Live with all faith and tenderness. Live there. Settle there like that. It's time for the church to remember that the life to which God has called us is one of love and friendship, faith, hope, and love, peace, 
wholeness, unity, tranquility. These are our birthright. And we're not just supposed to keep it for ourselves, but last but not least, God tells Moses, make sure they distribute it. You're supposed to distribute this stuff too. Share the good things you have inside of you. Share the joys of your life. Share the privileges that you have. Share the wealth that you Share it. Now, I know why you don't. Same reason me. Because over the last year, you try and share something, and everybody goes, oh, you have that? Oh, it must be nice. Must be nice to live this semi-charmed life where nothing bad ever happens to you. Mr. Twinkletoes, just over there, shining your halo in the corner for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus Jr. So glad you could stop by and let us know what the HS looks like in person. <laughs> because people spit on your gifts, because they spit on your time, because they spit on you, you don't want to share your life anymore. But you know what? I do. I do want to share my life because I was never sharing it with them for them. I was sharing it with them for him. I want, I want to be a living sacrifice. Because Jesus laid down his life for me. I want to lay down my life for, for you. Like the Apostle Paul, I want to have my life poured out like a drink offering. And that was never ever going to earn me favor or friends not in the way that we sometimes imagine i mean jesus said at first he goes if the world hates me you don't think they're going to hate you too the servant is not greater than their master i sacrifice my life for them and they take it from me and then i have to tell them no one takes my life i lay it down of my own accord you think it's going to be any different with you you act generously to someone and they fail to appreciate the gift they take it, they spurn it, they use it, they betray it. And it's up to you to decide whether or not you want to give it again. But that's our heritage. That's our legacy. We give. We give. We love. We serve. Because he first loved us. Because he came to serve. And so I keep thinking about the book of Numbers. I mean, it's a great extended metaphor, this 40 years of wandering. It's a great extended metaphor for this endless, seemingly, pandemic. It's a great extended metaphor for the hardness of their hearts and the hardness of mine. And it's a great extended metaphor for the fact that God never gave up on them and he's not given up on you either. And he's telling you, get ready for the fight of your life. It's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder. But you're condemned to victory. You're going to win. You just got to keep going. So remember the defiance with which you began. You remember that God has been protecting you and will continue to protect you. You remember there'll be little pleasures along the way because those little graces will sustain you through hardship and grief. It's time to come back, church. Time to come back to who you are. Time to dwell in the land that God has promised you from the beginning. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for your mercy and your grace to us and through us. Lord, we've been through so much. And in comparison, we haven't been through anything at all. So Lord, we repent of our weakness and of our selfishness. We repent of our grumbling. We repent of all our ego, our nonsense. And we ask, Lord, instead, for something better. 
We want to live in the way of love. We want to live in the way of peace, in the way of you and of your name. So we commit ourselves to you and to your promised future. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.